everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors at the Summit. And wherever you are, thankful that you have chosen to uh, join us in this uh, very unique expression uh, of our gathering. Um, I hope that shelter at home mandates and quarantine life has uh, been somewhat good for you. I know for uh, many of you, you've been crushing some Netflix over the past week. Uh, and for many of you, you've spent some portion of the last week with this guy uh, right here. Uh, I have not watching the Tiger King, so I have no idea who this is, what's going on. I've just seen this picture everywhere on my social media feeds, and I am so intrigued to figure out what is going on uh, in this particular picture. Uh, you never know where the wild world of Netflix is going to take you. Uh, for me this past week, the wild world of Netflix took me to learning about this 84-year-old marine biologist by the name of Sylvia Earle. There's a documentary about her life on Netflix. But there's something she said uh, that I thought was really, really timely for what it is that we're experiencing right now. She said this, she said, the best adults have the attributes of kids. They ask questions and have a sense of wonder. They have curiosity. Who, what, where, why, when, and how. They never stop asking questions. And I never stop asking questions, just like a five-year-old. Now, um, we typically lose that exploratory spirit to some degree as we get older. But there's something about uh, moments of chaos. There's something about being shaken from the status quo of life that propels us to start asking very deep questions again. Uh, we saw this in the life of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and uh, particularly this Sunday. This Sunday is Palm Sunday, uh, which I know this is a very unusual Palm Sunday. It's unlike any other we've ever celebrated as a church. But what Paul, uh, Palm Sunday commemorates is the commencement of Holy Week and the simultaneous beauty and tragedy of that week that at the beginning of the week, Jesus welcomed into uh, the city of Jerusalem as a king, uh, and towards the end of the week, he is prosecuted and eventually murdered as if he was a criminal. Three days later, he resurrects victorious over Satan, sin, death, and hell. But what we see as we study the events of history in that city in that week is that Jesus so shook the status quo of that city, its residents could not help but start wrestling with soul-level questions uh, about life. Who is God? What is going on? What does this mean for me? What is the purpose and meaning behind what's going on? Here we are 2,000 years removed uh, from that moment in history. And in many ways, we are shaken from our status quo and we are propelled to start asking. Um, for some of you, for the very first time in a very long time, um, for some of you, for the very first time ever, the deep questions of life, lives, uh, questions of purpose and meaning and who is God and where is God and all of what it is that we are experiencing right now. In light of this unique age of question asking, I wanted to make two observations before we dive into the text that we just had read for us. Um, I want to make two observations about the questions that we're asking in this moment in the current cultural crisis. One, notice the inescapability of questions of meaning. There is a certain inescapability, there's a certain inevitability that in this moment of cultural crisis, we are collectively asking questions of purpose. We're collectively asking questions of meaning. We're trying to figure out why is this thing going on? Now, notice what's not being said. Nobody is going onto the news and being like, it's all meaningless, it's all purposeless. Actually, the reality is, is we exist in this 
purposeless, meaningless, totally uh, chaotic and random cosmos. And because the cosmos is random, it has happened to throw out to us a moment of global pandemic where uh, millions of people's lives are gonna be interrupted, the economy is gonna crash, and people are going to die. Uh, it's totally random, don't think anything about, of it or try to figure out what's going on in it. And actually it's not that big of a deal because the reality is our existence is we're nothing more than a bag of bones and uh, our existence is turned off like a light when we die anyways. So I don't understand why all of you are so upset about this. Nobody's saying this. No, we're all, we're all wrestling through why is this going on, where is God, who is God, and what is God trying to do in all of this? We have to ask and have answered for us the meaning and purpose behind this. Secondly, there's also the necessity for us to answer these questions well. We have to answer these questions well. Not only are these soul-level questions being raised, but they are being answered. They are being answered a lot being answered a lot, loudly, publicly. Can I get an amen um, from you? Even if you're in the living room, I will feel your uh, amen in response in this particular moment. Can I get an amen from anybody who's on social media? Anybody on social media amazed at how many people in their spheres of relationships have had time over the last couple of weeks to become experts in science, medicine, philosophy, and loudly want to proclaim uh, with uh, unwavering confidence, this is what's happening in this particular moment of crisis that has baffled even the experts. What all of us can testify to through experience, even over the past week, is that there is serious pain when we answer serious soul-level questions in really silly ways. I was thinking about this uh, this past week. I was listening to uh, somebody who would be viewed as being a, a cultural influencer, and this person ascribes to a new age uh, philosophy and uh, religious understanding of God. And as an overflow of that belief system, they were talking very loudly about the coronavirus crisis and saying how, um, you know, they're talking about the power of positive thinking. They were talking about if enough people could start thinking uh, proactively about the events that are unfolding, we could even alter our reality. And as I was listening to this person talk, I found myself getting deeply outraged internally, uh, not only because of the philosophical nonsensicalness of what was being shared, um, but far more significantly, as I was listening to this person talk oh so confidently about how to fix all this, I was thinking about uh, the names and faces of the people in the life of our church um, that are suffering tremendously right now. And, um, and I was thinking about those of you who have lost your jobs or those of you who have, um, you keep your job but you're not getting paid for it right now or those of you whose jobs have become crazy, those of you who are in hospitals right now and you come to the end of the day and your face is bruised from wearing a mask for 12 hours nonstop, for those of you who have uh, had loved ones die and you can't attend their funeral, there can't be a funeral at all uh, because people aren't allowed to gather right now, those of you who are scared for your health or the health of a loved one, and I think about how dismissive and disrespectful it is towards your pain for somebody to come to you and just be like, well, if you would just have a more positive outlook about this, it wouldn't have to be this way anymore. There's serious consequences when we say silly things in response to soul-level questions. And it's interesting and uniquely timely that the next beatitude we would look at would be what Jesus says in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And isn't that what we need right now? We need to see God. We don't need to guess about who God is and then pass off our guesses as cosmic truth. We need God to step in and speak and reveal himself and have who he has revealed himself to be to become the lens through which we can clearly see the reality uh, in which we are currently enduring. 
See, there's this stunning reality of the Beatitudes, and it's going to shape the posture that I'm going to take through walking you through the conclusion of the Beatitudes today, is that the Beatitudes are not simply a call to go and do, but they are first and foremost a declaration of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and who he has revealed God to be. Jesus is the one person in the history of the world who was truly pure at heart. There was not even a whiff of sin in the life of Jesus. And consequently, when we see Jesus clearly, we see God clearly. So much clarity is given to mystery when we see Jesus. And so uh, what I want to do as we conclude the Beatitudes is take a bit of a different posture, particularly in light of it being Palm Sunday. The first couple of weeks in the Beatitudes, we took it from a posture of kind of, this is what we're supposed to go and do, and that's good and that's important, and the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount is meant to be understood from that perspective. But this particular Sunday, what I want to do is lift up Jesus and not first and foremost tell you what you should go and do. I want to tell you first and foremost about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and consequently, how the clarity of who God is revealed to be through the person and work of Jesus provides assurance in a very mysterious moment. All right, first here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus the peacemaker, and we're going to see that the clarity given to us through the peacemaking work of Jesus is that we see that God is faithful, that God is faithful. Say that with me right now in your living room. God is faithful. Jesus says this in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, we said this before, but this would have been a shocking statement to the original Jewish audience to which Jesus was primarily speaking to in this moment. Uh, as we shared when we first kicked off this series, that um, the Jewish first century conception of the Messiah was something akin to Rambo, uh, a warrior king ready to trample upon the, uh, the, the, the necks of his enemies. And anybody in his way uh, would be absolutely just crushed and killed. And particularly for the Jewish audience, they would have thought that the Messiah would be this warrior king who would, who would have that sort of posture, particularly towards the tyranny of the Roman authorities uh, of the day. And so how stunning it was to Jesus' original audience that he would declare that primarily underneath his reign and rule, he has come to bring peace. Jesus as peacemaker is a predominant theme of the Gospels from beginning to end. Actually, interestingly, before even Jesus is born, there's this very famous scene. <clears throat> In many ways, it's been um, tamed and desensitized because of the cuteness of our annual Christmas pageants, as wonderful as they might be. But there's this very terrifying scene where uh, angels appear to shepherds as they're keeping watch of their flock by night, and they declare, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, look at that next word, peace among those with whom he is Please. The terror of this moment is that God is sending a messenger, a warrior. That's who an angel is. Do not think a baby in a diaper. Think a warrior, a messenger. Then God is saying, that he's making a declaration of peace with those with whom he is well pleased. Now, we have to think critically here. What does a pronouncement of peace, what does an offer of peace assume? It assumes the condition of War and the, and the brokenness we're experiencing, the brokenness we're experiencing within us, around us, cosmically, microscopically, virally, in this particular moment, is shouting to us in a diversity of experiences 
things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is broken. We are separated from the God who not only created the cosmos, but upholds order and peace through the power of his word. The angels are declaring even before the birth of Jesus that a fundamental aspect of the work of Jesus will be that he has not only come to bring peace between person and person, as significant as that is, but far more significantly that Jesus has come to bring peace between person and God. That Jesus not only declares, blessed are the peacemakers, that Jesus is the beloved peacemaker. He is the peacemaker who goes to the cross fully man so that he might only empathize but take upon himself the totality of the brokenness of the human experience, fully God so that he might do something about it and create life where there was once death. Only God possesses the attributes to be able to accomplish a work like that. That's the heart of what we celebrate in this coming Holy Week. On one hand, the brutality of the cross, and the brutality of the cross is strangely affirming in this cultural moment where God is affirming how bad uh, things are both within us and around us. But simultaneous to this, the tension of this is we are not only celebrating the brutality of the cross, but the comfort of the cross, that the consequences of that brokenness, of that sin, fell onto Jesus rather than onto us. The gospel is Jesus in our place, that Jesus has paid the price necessary so that where there was once conflict, there might be reconciliation. And not just reconciliation, but adoption and transformation in our fundamental identities. That we go from being something more than just enemies who are forgiven, but we are the beloved. We are the adopted sons or daughters of God, a very identity that Jesus reminded us of again here in verse nine, that we are sons or daughters of God. And here's what we see is that because our fundamental identity is shifted from enemy to adopted child, that then can become the lens through which we understand who God is in a moment of crisis. A lot of times what happens in moments of crisis is we assume that what God is doing is he has forsaken us, he is abandoning us, he is bizarrely and mysteriously punishing us. Uh, right now, we are in a moment where a lot of times, a lot of people are saying with a lot of certainty, this is who God is in the midst of this. And to be honest, a lot of it is wrong. A lot of it is wrong. The culture will lie to us, our hearts will lie to us, our minds will lie to us. And there's a lot of mystery of who God is a lot of times, but let me tell you with uncertainty, uncertain, uh, unwavering certainty in this particular moment is that the clarity of the cross of Jesus Christ declares to us that if you're in Christ and you've been adopted into the family of God, God has not forsaken you, he's not abandoned you, and he is not arbitrarily punishing you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was forsaken in your place so that you might know you are never forsaken by God. That Jesus was abandoned in your place so you might know that you were never abandoned. That Jesus took every aspect of the punishment you deserve so that you might know that your father does not punish you. Sometimes he lovingly disciplines us as a good father does, but he does not arbitrarily punish us. 
And because our fundamental identity through the work of Jesus, because of his peacemaking work, has been accomplished, we can say with unwavering certainty, I'm never forsaken, I'm never abandoned, I'm not punished, but instead, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the one who is persecuted, and we see with this that life is tragic. So God is faithful, life is tragic. God is faithful, life is tragic. Jesus concludes the Beatitudes saying this, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, three observations from these final two Beatitudes. One, Jesus is showing the inevitability of our outsiderness, the inevitability of our outsiderness. What Jesus is saying is when you declare full allegiance to him as king, when you see your fundamental identity as citizen in his kingdom before any other earthly kingdom, it is going to come with you becoming some sort of outsider in the culture in which you exist. A lot of times it's very popular to believe that there is this rhythm of life where you can be fully faithful to King Jesus and fully embraced by a culture that does not love King Jesus. And Jesus from the beginning of founding our faith, is saying that is not a reality we can experience. Full faithfulness to him in some way is going to make us an outsider in the culture in which we exist. And so when we are presented in these moments and having to choose allegiance to the culture and allegiance to King Jesus, the king wins every single time. Two, Jesus foreshadowing his own death. Jesus is a great leader. Great leaders um, call people to places that they themselves are willing to go. And Jesus calls us to a place where he himself went in our place. Jesus himself will live this out. He will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. He will have evil set against him falsely. He will endure this trial. He will engage this suffering in order to bring the peace between us and God we so desperately need. Third, Jesus is telling us the world is broken and often there is no quick fix. This is very crucial for you to understand and unusually good news in this moment. Jesus is telling us the world is broken and often there is no quick fix. The reason what Jesus is saying here is so oddly comforting is sometimes, what he's helping us understand, is sometimes through no fault of our own, we are going to experience really hard things. So that's what he's saying right here, right? He's saying you are going to be persecuted. You're going to be treated very, very poorly. And it's not because you're making some mistake. Actually, it's because you're doing the right things. And I think that's unusually good news because a lot of times in American culture, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think we have this, you know, just unusual discomfort with things being hard or bad. I think we have a lot of privilege that has led to us having these delusions of grandeur and power that we can always be one quick fix, one small piece of device away from quick fixing everything is that we're made to believe that like, if we're suffering, it's directly because we've done something poorly or wrongly, or it's because we're missing the secret action step to make everything right again. And here's Jesus actually giving us a lens which we understand reality, is sometimes what's gonna happen in your life is you're gonna suffer because you live in a broken and fallen world. Sometimes things are bad and there's no quick fix. You know, a lot of you have experienced the pain of um, sharing something being hard in your life and what you're met with, or what you're met with in response, 
is not somebody being like, I'm really sorry, that's, that's really hard. Isn't life in a broken and fallen world? Isn't it just the worst? I can't wait till Jesus returns and makes all things new. Instead, we're met with is like, oh, that's no big deal. Oh, it's so easy. Just read this book. Just watch this TED Talk. Oh, here's the secret medicine you can take. Just pray this prayer. And the reason that's so hurtful for you is not only has your pain in many ways been dismissed, but a lot of times it's been compounded because what you're made to feel is this sense of shame of not only are you suffering, but it's your fault for suffering, and it's your fault that you're not smart enough to get the one very simple action step to have everything in life be going your Way. It is deeply painful when our pain is not only dismissed, but it's made to seem like we're just one, we're not smart enough to find this oh-so-simple cure. And here we are as a culture, I think actually one of the redemptive aspects of this moment is here we are as a culture being painfully, collectively shown how limited we actually are. And so what do we do? <laughs> what do we do when we are faced with this tension that Life is tragic, and God is faithful, and we are not just a simple TED talk or prayer away from making that tension disappear. Well, beloved, what we are invited into, I would say, is into the ancient and biblical practice of lament. Lament is an agreement with God that things really are bad, and entering into a longing to feel his presence, intimacy, and even to be reinvited into the sacred anticipation that a day is coming where it won't be this way anymore. Lament is the invitation to wrestle with God in the sacred tension in that reality that God is faithful and that life is tragic. And in many ways, that's some of what I wonder if God is up to in this moment, is if he is inviting us into that kind of intimacy, that kind of relationship, to actually speaking to him and hearing from him again. You see, Jesus' clarity in the midst of crisis, it doesn't mean that we have every single question answered. What it does mean is we are gifted a newfound invitation to experiencing God through the practice of lament. I even spent a lot of time um, this past week trying to pray about how to conclude this. And instinctually what I wanted to do was to kind of close with this powerful story that maybe makes you laugh and inspires you and makes you feel like everything's going to be okay. Uh, and I felt like God really rebuked me of being like um, alleviating the tension of what many of you are feeling right now is robbing you of the invitation into intimacy with the God who loves you and made you. I wonder at the end of this, and as we get several weeks into this, and as any whiff of romanticism about what we're going through is taken away, and when we are stripped of so much that we believed was essential for the good life, as we are stripped of really good things and our heart longs to have them again, as we wake up to the reality that um, there's not enough Netflix to distract us from the, from the crucial serious soul-level questions of life. What actually is at the end of this world, uh, at the end of this road, is a deeper and fuller joy than we could ever imagine. In no way trying to be dismissive of the pain, in no way trying to put a bow on a really difficult um, cultural moment that is impacting you so profoundly and individually, that's not lost on me. But I do wonder if what God is inviting us into is to actually start talking to him again and actually start hearing from him again.
and actually starting to relate to him again and actually starting needing him again. And at the end of this road is exactly what Jesus promises at the end of the Beatitudes, is that the kingdom of heaven is ours. Then enjoyment and delight and experiencing the tangible goodness of when Jesus Christ is Lord and we walk with him and talk with him in something akin to what was experienced in the garden is awakened within us anew. And so I want to encourage you towards that destination to lament in this coming week, to talk to God in this coming week. It's good that we're talking to other people about God. It's good that we are posting things in social media about who God is in the midst of this moment. But I think God is inviting us to something deeper and something more personal to start talking to him again and to start hearing from him again and to see how blessed life underneath his reign and rule actually is and to actually start tasting and seeing anew that if everything is taken away from us and all we have is him, we actually have everything. All right, I'm going to pray that God uh, meets you in that. I know for some of you that might make you feel vulnerable or uncomfortable or not even know what to do. That's some of what we hope is fleshed out in our communal liturgy, in our time together, and in this coming week as you have space to process and think. Um, But I'm just going to pray that God as a good father would give you the gift of his presence uh, in this coming week and that he meets you um, as you are yearning to hear him and see from him and experience him. Father, we pray that you would do that. And as a father gives good gifts, we pray that you would give the good gift of your presence. That is the greatest gift you could give. And so for people that are wrestling with deep questions, who are you? What are you up to? What is it that you're doing? I pray that you would answer those and not just answer those in um, uh, philosophically satisfactory uh, responses that alleviate the tension and let people move on to something else. But ultimately, these questions are answered in yourself and that you wake us up, that you awaken us, Father, that we so desperately need you. So, Father, speak to us. Let us hear from you. Let us speak to you and let us enjoy you. We ask these things in your powerful name.